Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It's a real joy to be back here at Fivehead. I think this is my second time. And I had a great time last time, and you even had a big banquet afterwards, uh, which was fabulous. I didn't tell my wife afterwards when I went home for dinner. <laughs> so it is, it is really good to be back and to be able to, to come and to share on this. Yes, it is a special day. Whenever we remember the Lord Jesus going into Jerusalem. But you know, as I was preparing this, I was thinking... It only seems like it was yesterday, it was Christmas. This year has flown by so fast. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago it seems like it was Christmas. Next week it's Easter. And then a wee while after that, it'll be Christmas again. Time time really does fly. And I'm sure as the Lord was approaching into Jerusalem, thinking back over the previous three and a half years, I wonder, did he think, wow, that time has flown. From the very start of his ministry, there when he went out into the wilderness for 40 days, and for 40 days he had been tempted, tested by Satan, then culminating with three major tests or temptations, then Christ, he goes into, back, back to the village, back to his home, and there's a wedding taking place where he's invited to. And there at his first act of ministry was this wonderful miracle, which only Mary knew about and the people who were serving the wine. It wasn't a public miracle as such, even though in some ways it was, but just the servants and Mary. Jesus said to them, bring the water pitchers to me. Fill them up with water and then start to serve it. And as they serve it, the the guest, the, the, the chief person at the wedding said, wow, most people keep the, serve the good wine at the start, but you've kept the good wine until the end. He has three and a half years of ministry leading up to Jesus going to Jerusalem. Through those three years, he did many miracles. Remember the blind man who was made to see? The lame made to walk, the deaf to hear? Remember the situation where the paralyzed man, where his four friends had brought him along and they because they couldn't get into the room where Jesus was, was teaching, they climbed up onto the roof. They broke up on the roof and let, Jesus, uh, let, let their friend down to the feet of Jesus. And at Jesus' word, the man, it says, his sins were forgiven, but also he was completely healed. Jesus said, take up your bed and walk. Yes, Jesus, his ministry, it was going on. He raised the dead. He healed the paralytic. His ministry included, uh, at one point, one time, feeding 4,000 people. Another time, feeding 5,000. After he had been teaching them all day. 
Yes, Jesus' ministry had been going on and had touched the whole of the nation. But along with his ministry, right from the very start, there was misunderstandings. For example, in Luke chapter 4, it tells us that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. And later on, the people, they got up and they brought him out and they were going to throw him over the top of the hill. Because they disagreed and they were offended by what he was saying. Others, they thought that Jesus was coming to be that political deliverer. The one who was going to conquer Rome was going to uh, take the place of King Herod and rule with justice and truth. Another time Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2, it's recorded, I will give you a sign. I will destroy this temple and raise it up again on the third day. And then the debate between the people who were watching said... (coughs) Excuse me. How can this be? It took our fathers many years to build the temple. How can you say you'll build it again in three days? Totally misunderstanding the ministry of Christ. Then just a few days before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, as he approaches Jerusalem, we know the story of Zacchaeus. A man who was considered a sinner. He was considered somebody who had betrayed their nation. He was hated. And Jesus goes and has dinner with him. And the Pharisees and the religious people were saying, he's he's a friend of the sinners. How can this be? Another time, after he had cast out a demon, they said, you're only doing this because you are the prince of demons. You're Beelzebub. You're Satan himself. Total misunderstanding. <coughs> Excuse me. Another time, in John chapter 10, he's accused of being a blasphemer. Three and a half years of ministry. Yes, there were the ups, there were the the great blessings, the great miracles. But probably the underlying fact is that most people, they don't really know and understand what's happening. There's a few people who have truly accepted Christ as their Lord, as their King, as their Messiah. They don't fully understand it yet. But most people are probably waiting and thinking... I wonder, maybe he's going to be, at this time, bring, restore Jerusalem to us. He's going to become the political king that we're wanting. Or maybe he's an imposter. Yes, here we see the circumstances, the conditions that were leading up to this triumphant, en- triumphant entry into Jerusalem and the events that, that, that lay ahead. But Jesus had his mission. It says in these verses that Jesus was going to Jerusalem. Elsewhere in the scriptures it tells us that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. 33 years of life 
and his purpose was coming to fulfillment. To go to Jerusalem to be obedient to the Father. (coughs) Excuse me. Jesus had already predicted three times to his disciples. He had told them, the Son of Man asked to be asked to suffer. He's going to be taken by the leaders. He's going to be, be betrayed and beaten. What were the disciples' response? Lord, can't happen. I'll stand up and fight for you. They themselves didn't understand. Yes, Jesus' conviction was he had to go and do the will of the Father. The reason he had come, the reason it had been predicted many, many years before, hundreds of years before through the prophets. And Christ was determined to fulfill his Father's will. The conditions, the conviction. Then we see the little quote that he used. Jesus said to the disciples, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter, you'll find a coat tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here to me. A little coat that had never been used. Nobody had sat on its back, it had never been mistreated never been beaten a young colt prepared and waiting ready for the master a colt that had never been used later on we'll see that Jesus is buried in a tomb that's never been used and of course we have to remember back that he was born of a virgin from a womb that had never been used. We see this trace of perfection and purity in every aspect of his life. What a saviour. Again, as we think of this little colt, now, I'm not a horsey person at all. I don't like them, (laughs) to be honest. But any Anything I've seen of horses or donkeys or whatever, whenever somebody tries to break in a horse or a colt, they're not particularly calm things. They're bucking about, they're throwing the, the, the rider off, this, that, and the other. There's no mention of that here. But Jesus simply puts his leg over the donkey and it takes him off peacefully and quietly. I believe here we see the power of the creator at work. Jesus bringing calm to the situation. Isn't it wonderful? The conviction of Jesus, he must go to Jerusalem. The conditions that led up to this, the quote. Then the conversation. If anyone asks you what you're, why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. I'm reading the following verses, that's exactly what happened. Now, we've got questions regarding this, which I don't have an answer to, but one or two thoughts. Was this something which had been prearranged? 
had the Lord already prearranged some previous time when he visited this village on a certain time I'm going to come and please have this little coat ready for me? I don't know. We can only speculate and suggest. Or was this the sovereignty of God? God leading him. God working in the man's heart so he was prepared and ready, had the little coat tied exactly as Jesus would say. Was this God's power and sovereignty at work? Was the owner of this little coat perhaps a secret disciple? Somebody who had been following Jesus but didn't want to do it openly because of fear of the Pharisees and the religious rulers. We don't know. But what we do know, it happened exactly as Jesus had said. What a wonderful conversation that must have been. The Lord needs it. On you go. Take it. He'll bring it back when he's ready, when, it, when he's done. Isn't it wonderful just to be able to make your little coat available to Jesus? I'm sure that little coat never forgot, forgot it, nor did the owner and possibly even the village, Jesus rode my little donkey. Hallelujah. Then we go on and we see the crowd. It says they brought it to Jesus. They threw their, their, their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, the people spread their cloaks on the road. Who was this crowd? Obviously, a, the 12 disciples were there. They've already at names or says they've thrown their coats on the, the, on the colt. I wonder where the Mary's there. Jesus' mother, Mary Magdalene. Was Martha there? I wonder, was Lazarus there? I have to remember that uh, on this occasion, at, at the feast of the Passover, this was the greatest feast in Israel. And everybody was obliged if they could possibly get to Jerusalem to go up to Jerusalem. So people were crowding into Jerusalem in order to get ready for the sacrifices they had to make except for the Passover. I wonder where those who the Lord cured, were they there? The lepers? Remember the ten lepers? It says that only one came back to thank him. I wonder where the other nine there that day and did they recognize Jesus the blind man able to see the one who had made him who, who, who had given him a new life the lame, the paralyzed those who Jesus had fed uh, in the fields those who had been at the wedding were they all there the ones who he had set free from bondage to Satan the demon possession were they there shouting their praises to King Jesus what about Nicodemus that religious leader full of questions a bit embarrassed a bit shy so he came to Jesus by night he said Rabbi we know you're a teacher come from God was Nicodemus there Waving a palm branch, or he had had he thrown his coat 
in front of the donkey? We don't know. There was probably those there who wanted Jesus to be their political leader and, and, and deliverer. But we also know there was those there who just a few days later would reject him, would cry out, crucify him. We do not want this man to rule over us. Give us Barabbas instead. Give us a murderer. Give us a thief. Would rather have a thief than this man who claims to be the king of the Jews. Yes, the crowd, all sorts of people, all sorts of reasons, all sorts of stories and, and, and experiences going through their mind as they saw Jesus. We see their cheering. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Wow, isn't that wonderful? What a day, that, what a celebration that might have, must have been. Hundreds if not thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people lining the streets. What a chorus. You can imagine sort of some of these big celebrations or, or processions we see up in London wherever the Queen or some dignity sort of arrives all shouting and waving their flags or their palm branches. Well, that's what was happening. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I want you to note something here. This seems, at least to the best of my knowledge, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the only time when Jesus allows people to cry out and publicly declare who he is. It's the only time that Jesus allows people to publicly declare who he is. Let me give you a couple of examples. Remember after the man, the, the man who was possessed with many demons, he was set free, the demons were cast out. Jesus told them, go away. Don't tell anybody who I am. Later on in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks the disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they give all sorts of, of, of different answers. Then Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the anointed one. <coughs> And what does Jesus say to him? Don't tell this to anybody. Don't say this to anybody. Keep it to yourself for now. I wonder why this time Jesus was allowing the disciples, the, the, the crowd, to declare him as king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. I was just thinking about this. I have been pondering this all week, but it just came to me this morning over breakfast. Is it because Jesus doesn't want people to be told or forced, it's probably a better word, to call Jesus king? But he wants them to do it out of their own free will. 
Is it because Jesus doesn't want people to be forced through propaganda or any other means to call him king? But he wants people to do it out of their own free will. I believe that's what God wants. Yes, see, we have to go out and tell people who Jesus is, but we can't force them. We can't play on their consciences or, or, their, or their emotions. We can't try to manipulate them. But we have to allow them to make the decision and claim Jesus as their own Lord and Savior. Yes, the cheering, heal Jesus, King of the Jews. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But while this was all going on, at the same time there's a conspiracy. The critics are there, working in in the midst of the crowd. What do they say? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus replies, if they keep quiet, this is wonderful, if this crowd keeps quiet, the very stones will cry out to my prayers. What a day that must have been. Can you imagine what it would have been like if the, suddenly the stones got their voices and started praising God? What a joyful occasion. But yeah, these conspirators, they write from the very start of Christ's ministry. They have been objecting to him. They didn't want a Messiah. They didn't want the Christ. They didn't want the Savior. They wanted their own position, their own power and authority. They did not want to have somebody to be Lord and King over them. They wanted to have their own little dominion and people looking up to them. Oh yes, they were objecting to him. Everything right, right across them, his ministry. Whether it was the disciples who were just out picking a few grains of wheat in the, in the, in the, in the wheat field. They were saying, they shall not do this on the Sabbath. Etc. Yeah, the conspiracy is there. They're already plotting how they're going to kill and murder Jesus. But then as we come to the end of this passage, suddenly the tone changes. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Can you imagine going from a situation of celebration, of jubilation, of great joy and excitement, and he turns a corner on the road, and there in front of him lies Jerusalem. You'd have thought the king said, Oh, this is great. Here is my new home. This is this is where I'm going to be king. No, but quite the opposite. He's moved to tears as he sees the people who, yes, they might be shouting Hosanna, but in their hearts they're crying, crucify him. We only read, I believe, twice 
in the scriptures that Jesus wept. The previous time was Jesus wept for Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus had died. He'd been in the tomb three days. Jesus arrives. And it says, Jesus wept. The onlookers' response is, Oh, how this man, how Jesus must have loved Lazarus. Jesus wept for the individual. But now as he approaches Jerusalem, he weeps once more. And I'm sure the weeping at Jerusalem was probably even more bitter than the weeping for Lazarus. Because he knew the miracle he was about to do, raising Lazarus from the dead. But he knew as he looked over Jerusalem, there was a city, there was a people who were rejecting the Prince of Peace, the King of Glory. Yes, they might be shouting Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes. But in their hearts, they had rejected him. Yes, Jesus, he cries, he weeps for both the individual but also for the multitude. I believe in this we see the the true heart of God. John chapter 3 and verse 16, we all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son That whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. He's weeping not because he knows he's going to die, but because he knows that the people in that city have rejected him. You might think this is a very somber note to close the sermon on on such a joyful day. But you know, that is our Christian faith. It is the joy of our resurrection, of our hope in Christ. Likewise, on Easter, is it a time of mourning or is it a time of celebration? When we celebrate communion, is it a time of grief Or is it a time of of jubilation? It's both. Remembering, yes, Christ's awesome sacrifice. Giving everything for us. But also the jubilation and the joy of Christ raised from the dead. And with his resurrection, he has also raised us to life and hope in him. So as I close this morning in this joyful occasion this Palm Sunday let's not be ashamed to shed the odd tear for the people in five head who are rejecting this Messiah let's not be afraid to weep for those who are lost 
Because unless they come to Jesus, they will be destroyed. And it goes on to tell us about the destruction that was going to happen to Jerusalem. 70 AD, the Roman Empire came in and it flattened Jerusalem. Killed men, women and children. Because they had rejected the Lord. May the Lord help each one of us. Whenever we shout, blessed is the king. May we sing it from the depths of our heart with joy. Knowing that he is indeed our true king. Our savior and our Lord.